Welcome today. Glad to have you. Glad to have those who are joining us live stream as well. We're in the midst of a sermon series in July, WWJD, question mark, LGBTQ. What would Jesus do about lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or questioning? This is the fourth and final message. The first message, we were talking about why have the discussion? Because it's culturally, biblically, and personally relevant. And the second message, we looked at the major passages in the Bible that deal with homosexual practice, identifying it as sin. We also looked at alternative understandings or interpretations of those passages by gay affirming churches. Last Sunday, we had a married couple, Christian couple, whose son is a gay, is a gay man. So all of that is on our website. Those, those three sessions are on our website. If you didn't get one of those, you want to go back and review. Today, I want to talk about what is the church's response. Now, before I get to that proper, here in the introductory portion, I want to deal with this. Somebody asked me, is uh, the gay orientation inborn? Is it genetic? Is it inborn? Let me just deal with that. I'm not a scientist, but I can survey the scientific literature, and I have, as many of you probably have as well. I would say in summary that the, the science is not settled. The jury is still out about that. Just as an example, there was a 2018 study. It included 400,000 individuals on non-heterosexual orientation. Here's the conclusion to that study. There, quote, there is no single gay gene. Non-heterosexuality is in part influenced by many tiny genetic effects, environmental components, developmental factors, and personal choices. And probably everyone's different. So you can't make a blanket generalization about this. And again, the science is not settled. Now, in one way that makes a difference, in another way, it really makes no difference. If you're a Christian, regardless of whether your uh, same-sex attraction is inborn or acquired, or what that mix may be, regardless, a Christian is still obligated to obey God and resist temptation as the Bible defines it. So that's all I really have time to say about that. What should the church's response be? Well, this morning I want us to take our cues from Jesus in John chapter 8 as he dealt with a person who was caught in sexual sin. It wasn't homosexual sin, nevertheless. It was sexual sin. And so for us as a church, as Christians, we have two don'ts and two do's this morning. Number one, don't throw stones. Don't throw stones. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? And they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. And they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and he said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Okay, so what do I mean when I say, we as a church, we don't throw stones? We know stones hurt. And I want us to notice Jesus, how Jesus used his words and his actions and his reactions in this encounter to, to de-escalate, de-escalate the hostility in this crowd and to create a safe space for this woman. It really is the intervening and in, in saving her life. And we can use our words in the same way. You know, our words are like a, a bucket of water or a bucket of gas, and you got a fire, and you're either going to throw gas on the fire or you throw water on the fire. We can use our words to, to build people up, to encourage, to communicate love and welcome and welcome 
and create a safe space where anybody can come into our church, no matter what they're struggling with, and say, we love you, we welcome you, we're glad that you are here. Now, I know that that whole terminology of safe space, maybe it's been overused, maybe it's cliched, simply using it the way Jesus seemed to use his actions and his word, to create a safe environment for this woman to be in. And so, for instance, we want to make sure that we're not the kind of people that tell gay jokes. And I'm sure probably nobody here does. But when I was growing up in high school, probably 75% of all the jokes were gay jokes. And I told gay jokes back then. And I've had to learn better since that time. Make sure that our, our conversation is not laced with sexual innuendo. Right? If we see two guys or friends, a guy puts an arm around his buddy's shoulder or two women who are sitting close together, we don't roll our eyes, we don't make insinuations, there's no sexual innuendo, we don't tell gay jokes. Right? Because sometimes we may be in our close circle of friends and we say, well, everybody's going to find this funny and nobody's going to be offended. But what we may not realize, that even in our close circle of friends, there may be somebody there who themselves struggles with same-sex attraction. They just never told us. Or maybe they have a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister or a close relative that is, is gay, and they've never told me. Why? Because they don't consider me safe. Why? Because I'm throwing stones with my words. And on the outside, maybe they would laugh, but on the inside, they're dying because I'm stoning them with my words. That's, that's hateful. That's hateful speech, and we cannot do that. The Bible says always, all of our language should be that which is encourages people and builds people up and conveys love to people. So if, somebody, if you're in a group and somebody tells a gay joke, you don't have to unfriend them for life. Just say, hey, man, not cool, not cool, don't laugh. And they'll begin to get the message. Maybe they'll think twice before they do that again. So a re really just a simple thing. But with our actions and our reactions and our demeanor and our posture and our words, we don't throw stones. Now here's a second don't. Don't walk away. Don't walk away, verse 9. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. So the accusers in this mob begin to go away. Why? Because Jesus said, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. Right? So they're convicted by that. I mean, we, we can think about that. Uh, do we have any sinners here this morning, by the way? Yeah, yes, we do. Everybody. We're all sinners. How would you feel if you were drug up in front of everybody and, and somehow we knew your secret sin and it was splashed up here on the screens for everybody to see? You would feel just as vulnerable as this poor woman was. And they did, so they turned away. Now, they walked away, which is better than stoning her, I'm sure, but Jesus did not walk away, and he stayed right there with her. And that's what our friends, our friends who are struggling with same-sex attraction and maybe are seeking the truth, seeking the Lord, seeking another way, what do they need from us, the church? They need friendship. They need what we all need, friendship, or we call it fellowship. They need a home. They need a family. And they, they need people to walk alongside of them. Now in your bulletin is the resource, Washed and Waiting by Wesley Hill, the title of that book. I've had it in there every week for four weeks. I'm hoping that some of us may buy that and read that. Wesley Hill is a, is, a, is a gay man who is a Christian. He's trying to walk with the Lord without sinning. And there's a lot of wisdom in that book. But here's, I want to read you a quote from Washed and Waiting by Wesley Hill. He writes, perhaps one of the main challenges of living faithfully before God as a gay Christian is to believe, to really believe that God in Christ can make up for our sacrifice of homosexual partnerships, 
not simply with his own desire and yearning for us, but with his desire and yearning mediated to us through the human faces and arms of those who are our fellow believers. According to Jesus, there's no greater love than the sacrificial love of one friend for another. Is it not peculiar that in writing the greatest discourse on love found in the New Testament, Paul chooses to put it not with his discussion of marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, but in the context of the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 13. The greatest joys and experiences God has for us are not found in marriage. For if they were, surely God would not do away with marriage in heaven. But since he has already told us that he is doing away with it, we too can realize that the greatest things God has to give us are not to be found in marriage at all. The remedy for loneliness, if there is such a thing, this side of God's future, is to learn over and over again to feel God's keeping presence embodied in the human members of the community of faith, the church. Friendship. We walk with each other side by side in this journey of faith. So don't throw stones, don't walk away. That's our two don'ts. Continuing with this passage, now we have a to-do list. We have to-do, two to-dos. And the first one is, we do offer grace. We do offer grace. John chapter 8, verse 10. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now, these have to be five of the most hope-filled words in the human language. Neither do I condemn you. Let's just put aside this whole issue of homosexuality and same-sex attraction that may not be the, the issue for many of us here this morning. Let's just put that aside. I want you to hear Jesus saying that to you today, to you and your sin. Jesus does not condemn you. If you're a Christian, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you were baptized, you were baptized into Christ. God placed you into Christ. You talk about a safe space in Christ or in grace. That's the grace space where God does not give us what we deserve. He gives us the opposite of what we deserve. Forgiveness, justification, perfect righteousness in Christ. You are not condemned. You are not going to go to hell. You are not going to be punished. You are going to heaven. There is no condemnation for Christians. It's a wonderful, this is the good part of the good news. It's great for us to just dwell in that every once in a while. That's what God offered us, made this grand offer. You give me your faith and your trust, you know what I'll give you in exchange? Forgiveness, justification. I'm going to treat you better than you deserve. Eternal life in heaven. That's the offer that we have for all sinners, sexual sinners included, is the offer of God's grace, his forgiveness. So while we're being hospitable and, and friendly and loving to folks who come to us, we also offer them the gospel, the word of God. Now, in any conversion, there's my part and there's God's part. And, and God can only do his part when we get his word into the equation. We can't do, God, we can't do that for God. God has to do that part. Dr. Rosaria Butterfield is an English professor at Syracuse University in New York. She, she was a, a lesbian and a LGBTQ activist. In 1997, Promise Keepers came to her town. 
And so she wrote a letter of protest to the editor that was published, letter of protest about promise keepers. And this, this letter garnered her much mail. So she's getting hate mail and she's getting fan mail. She would sort them out into their various boxes. But she got one piece of mail from a local Presbyterian minister, Reformed Presbyterian Church named Ken Smith, wrote her a letter. It didn't fit in either box. It wasn't fan mail. It wasn't hate mail. And basically, in the letter, he challenged her to defend her accusations against promise keepers, against the church, against Christianity, intellectually. And, and she began, that began a two-year correspondence between her and this minister, Ken Smith. The two-year correspondence culminated in an invitation to dinner over to their house. So she went over to their house for dinner and met Ken and his wife, Floyd, and they had dinner, and they didn't consider her a project. They didn't try to baptize her that night. They didn't even invite her to church. They just loved on her. And that began another two-year journey of friendship and studying the Bible together. Dr. Butterfield's testimony is on YouTube. It's about 40 minutes long. But right here, I'm going to show you two minutes of that testimony because I want to focus in. It's a great illustration, I think, of the power of the Word of God. Let's roll that, please. I tried to toss the Bible and its teachings in the trash. I really tried. But Ken encouraged me to keep reading. He was my friend, and I trusted him. And so I did. As I read and reread the Bible, I kept catching my wings in its daily embrace. I was fighting the idea that the Bible is inspired and inerrant, that is, that its meaning and purpose has a holy and supernatural authority that has protected it over the years of its canonicity and that it is the repository of truth. How could a smart cookie like me believe these things? I didn't even believe in truth. I was a postmodernist. I believed in truth claims. I believed that the reader constructed the text, that a text's meaning found power only in the reader's interpretation of it. Without a reader, a book is just paper and glue, I told my students over and over again. How could, how dare, this one book lay claim to a birthright and progeny so different from all the others? That this book was supernatural was becoming more and more evident to me and my hermeneutical bag of tricks had no system of containment for it. As I was reading and discussing these things with Ken, he pointed out to me that Jesus is the Word made flesh, and that knowing Jesus demands embracing the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of someone's imagination. The whole Bible, even the places that took my life captive. And after years and years of this, something happened. The Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world, and I fought against it with all my might. And then one Sunday morning, two years after I first met Ken and Floyd, and two years after I started reading the Bible for my research, I left the bed I shared with my lesbian partner, and an hour later, I was sitting in a pew at the Syracuse Reform Presbyterian Church. I say this not to be lurid, but to remind us that we simply never know the treacherous journey people take to arrive in the pew that we share Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Here's what the Bible says about itself. Hebrews 4, 12. The Word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God 
Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. We make sure we get God's word, the gospel, into the equation with our friends whom we are journeying in faith. Sorry, so we do offer grace. And then the second do is we do encourage repentance. We do encourage repentance. In verse 11, John 8, 11, Jesus said, Go and sin no more. So while Jesus didn't leave her and he didn't throw stones and he loved her and he offered grace, he's still holding her accountable, holding her accountable. You got to walk with the Lord in obedience. So God created a perfect world, perfect universe, perfect people, and people we through our free will sinned and brought a curse down upon this universe. It's the curse of sin and upon ourselves. And of course, we know our theology. Sin results in a double curse. A double trouble, double problem. It makes us guilty and it makes us sick. Sin makes us guilty before the eyes of the law and it corrupts us. But God didn't just leave us that way or his creation that way. God has a double cure through Jesus Christ. And the first part we talked about, forgiveness, grace, that takes care of our guilt, the guilt of sin. God forgives us. But over here with the corruption that we deal with in all different ways and all different people, the sin, sickness, and corruption God deals with through sanctification. The Holy Spirit the, gives us the power to become progressively holy and like Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11, through 11, Paul is listing there the various kinds of lifestyles that will prevent people from entering the kingdom of God. And he, in verse 9, he has two different words for the homosexual lifestyle. So that's in there, right along with idolaters and adulterers and swindlers and thieves. So these, these, these are the kind of lifestyles that will not enter the kingdom of God, which is not even his point. His point is in verse 11, where he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God. So he's talking about when you were washed, that's when you were baptized, you were justified, that's forgiven, and you were sanctified, set apart by the Holy Spirit and given this power to live for God. So here's what that means for the, those who have the homosexual orientation. God can do one of two things for you. Number one, change the orientation. Now I know that there is a Loud, vocal, powerful, political lobby that denies that is even possible. It's always curious to me that we hear now that gender is totally fluid, but one's sexual orientation is absolutely fixed. But nevertheless, do not let anybody tell you otherwise. There are people who have left the homosexual lifestyle and are having, have had successful heterosexual relationships. Their testimonies are out there, and they ring true. That doesn't happen for all, I know that, but it does happen for some. Now, let me return. I want to show you two more minutes of this 40-minute testimony of Dr. Butterfield as she talks about what changed for her. Let's roll that. I repented of my pride, the pride that led me to believe that I could invent my own rules for faith in life and sexual autonomy the pride that said that I was entitled to live separately from God, the pride that led me to believe that self-worth was self-invented. Repentance is bittersweet business. Repentance is not just some conversion exercise. It is the posture of the Christian. 
Repentance is our daily fruit, our hourly washing, our minute-by-minute wake-up call, our reminder of God's creation, Jesus' blood, and the Holy Spirit's comfort. Indeed, repentance is the only no-shame solution to a renewed Christian life because it proves only the obvious, that God was right all along. Conversion was a train wreck. I didn't want to lose everything that I had to gain Christ, but I did. And softly, the voice of God sang a sanguine love song into the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank from the means of grace that God provides, Bible reading, prayer, psalm singing, fellowship of the saints, then later church membership and the Lord's Supper. I took respite and private peace and then Christian community. And eventually God placed me in a covenant family as a wife and a mother, a teacher and a writer. God radically changes people from the heart. And the proof of conversion is a heart changed by Jesus. We do not look to ourselves to see if we measure up. We do not use our personal feelings as proof of gospel life. We do not look to ourselves because we do not measure up. And that's the point. Jesus measures up for us. I said, uh, God will do one of two things, either change the orientation. You know, I have, I, I've known people who are in recovery from alcohol and drugs, and I know some who say that God has taken the desire for alcohol away from them completely. They don't even struggle with that anymore. I know many more who say they still have the desire for alcohol or drugs. They have to fight against it every day, and God gives them the grace to do that. The second thing God may do for people is not change the orientation, but enable that person to live with the, the sexual orientation, homosexual orientation, without sinning. And that means a life of celibacy. Now, one more quote from author Wesley Hill on this. He writes, Once when I was at a low point in my struggle with my homosexuality, I wrote to an older single friend, How can I go on living with this frustration? My friend wrote back, Your email speaks in some detail about the desire for marriage and intimacy. To not experience this relationship means living with unfulfilled desire. But I assure you, even if you have to live your whole life without the blessings of marriage and family, you are not alone. Many, many people are and have been in the same boat. I'm 41 years old, a virgin, and one who has never experienced physical intimacy with another man. Do I long for it? Yes. But God's grace is fully sufficient to accomplish his purpose in me. Further, I would suggest that living with unfulfilled desires is not the exception of the human experience, but the rule. Even most or many of those who are married, as Thoreau once said, are living lives of quiet desperation. Maybe they married the wrong person or have the pain of suffering within marriage or feel trapped in their situations and are unable to fulfill a higher sense of calling. The list of unfulfilled desires goes on and on. 
The gospel does not necessarily promise a rescue out of the pain of living with homosexual desires. Instead, it is a message about God's strange working in and through that pain, God's alchemy of redemption, as Philip Yancey calls it. My power is made perfect in weakness, not in the absence of weakness, the Lord said to Paul. And that's not all. You know, God's cure, it's here and it's now. It's forgiveness and we live with the power of the Holy Spirit to help us. But it, there's also a future aspect to God's cure. It's a cosmic cure that's coming in the future when all the world will be re remade. A new heavens and a new earth and new bodies that have been purged from the corruption of sin. Is it worth it? You know, here's the deal God makes with us. He says, look, follow me. Be willing to deny yourself. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Be willing to deny yourself and maybe sacrifice some things. For a few decades here and in the future eternity, the new heavens, the new earth, or the new body, I'll make it worth it to you. It will have been worth its while. Is it worth it? Will it be worth it? The Apostle Paul, a single man, thought so. Writes in Romans 8.18, Justin. Romans 8.18. Yet we, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. So we live with God and God's help in the present, and we keep a future focus. We got to believe that's true. We got to believe that's true, or too many people will not think it is worthwhile. What is faith? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Anyone who comes to him must believe he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for what we have here this morning. Almost everybody here in this room, what we have is a church family where we love each other, where we embrace and accept each other, where we're walking together arm in arm in this journey of faith, where we don't throw stones and we don't walk away and we do offer to each other grace and we hold each other accountable. And everybody who comes through those doors who may not be a part of that yet, need, but they need it. Maybe that's part of why they're here. We pray, God, you remind us of what our posture always has to be, arms open wide, speaking words of love and encouragement, openness and grace. In Jesus' name we pray.